0: Episode 111, A Bicycle Built for Two. I'm Bob Kekeisen, and you're listening to the July 14th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my Whether used for recreation, competition, or transportation, bicycles have been with us since the early 19th century, but their popularity really exploded in the 1870s and 1880s. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a tandem bicycle that dates to the turn of the last century and learn why riding a tandem bike is a lot trickier than you'd think. And then, July is the most patriotic month on the calendar, so in this installment of Six Degrees of William Allen White, we asked you to connect Mr. White with one of the best-known composers of American patriotic songs, Broadway legend George M. Cohan. Did the Sage of Emporia have a secret passion for the Broadway stage? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, a bicycle built for two. Morning, Rebecca. Hi, Bob. Well, today we are talking about a tandem bicycle that's in the museum collection. And first, could you describe it for us and maybe tell our listeners where they could see images of the mm-hmm. bicycle?
1: Well, as always, they can see images on our Cool Things page on the website, kshs.org. Okay. Um, and we have some great images of the tandem there. Um... I don't know if people really know what a tandem bicycle is. Uh, maybe you've heard the term bantered around, but tandem means that more than one person can ride it. And it means fore and after, front to back arrangement of the seats, not side to side. So maybe if you've been around bicyclists, now you're getting this mental picture of two or more people on a bike with one person in front and everybody else behind. So ours is a two seater tandem and it's red. I always like to look at the color yeah. of a bike. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it probably was black originally. Uh, looks like there's a coating of original paint underneath the red. And it's got that four-aft seat arrangement. The wheels, there's two wheels, and they're spread pretty far apart, which is typical for a two-seat tandem. Each rider has their own set of handlebars and their own set of pedals and the two handlebars are connected at the bottom by a rod Um, so I guess the idea is if one person turns on this particular bike the other person will feel the handlebars moving and will turn accordingly so maybe it doesn't require all all, as much conversation as if they weren't connected Um, and um, it's got uh, you know well it's it's a fixed gear bike I I don't know if I think most people have ridden bikes and you know that if you ride a bike today a lot of times you have multiple gears you can shift so you can shift into an easier gear when you're going up a hill and a bigger gear when you're going down you get more um, traction Uh, this bike is what you call what people uh, who are cyclists call a fixie, it's fix. It's <laughs> okay, a one fixie. gear, I like that. and that gear is probably always going to be wrong uh, by today's standards because you can't change it. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a pretty simple bike for its time.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was a kid when you got up to three speeds. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah
1: the, and the ten the, speed, yeah, what speed. a revolution! Yeah,
0: in, yeah, now they're what like dozens.
1: Oh in, yeah, like yeah. It depends on probably the limits of your pocketbook. Bike. You All
0: know. Right. Wow. Cool. Well, I understand this particular uh tandem bicycle is mm-hmm. fairly old so could you tell us like when it was made and is this was was bicycle pop, bicycling popular when this uh-huh. bicycle was made
1: yeah well um a lot of museum artifacts, we don't know exactly when they were made. We have mm-hmm. to give a big time range. But this one, we know almost exactly. It's got a plate on it um, that says it was made by the American Bicycle Company. Okay. And that company operated from 1899 to 1902.
0: so, okay, so a big <laughs> three, three years. <laughs> maybe
1: three and a half years in there. We okay. know it's right around the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that time frame is that that was at the very tail end of a boom actually the beginnings of a bust in an American oh, okay. bicycle manufacturing bicycling was huge in the eighteen late 1870s through the 80s and 90s okay. just huge I mean uh, there was a fierce competition over American uh, manu- between American manufacturers to produce the newest bicycle. And, you know, you, maybe some of our listeners have seen those big, uh, uh, they call them uh, high-mount bicycles, oh, the really wheel on front huge and then, yeah. wheel and the tiny wheel on mm-hmm. the back. Those were, as you can imagine, not that safe. <laughs> so those were mainly, uh, if I can kind of extrapolate, those were mainly um, used by upper-class people, okay. uh, people who had a lot of leisure time and they were a lot more expensive and uh, a lot of young upper-class men enjoyed riding those they were a bit more dangerous now if you're if a woman is wearing voluminous skirts as they did back then that is not a safe bike so during the uh, bicycle craze in the 80s and 90s they developed what's known as a safety bicycle and and our bike is one of those it's a low bicycle Mm -hmm. the wheels are a lot smaller Um, you're closer to the ground it's just easier to ride and when the safety bicycle appeared that's when the boom happened in bicycle manufacturing and um The bicycles came down in price, and people bought them, a lot of them. I mean, thousands and thousands of people owned bicycles.
0: I assume there's a lot of companies producing them. Many,
1: many different companies. And then the bottom fell out of the market because of overproduction. (laughs) Um, And what happened with the American Bicycling Company is that about 40 companies joined together to try and— well prevent the inevitable end Forty, <laughs> about 40 wow, that's, companies joined that's a compl- and there were <laughs> there were others operating wow. in in the united states at the time but mm-hmm. they they tried to um basically then by by merging into this one big company they tried to limit production and stave off the end but it didn't happen and mm-hmm. this company collapsed in 1902 so for our bike it's kind of neat that we know almost exactly when it so was we made know
0: pretty much when it was made so mm-hmm. it's right around the turn of the last century Exactly And earlier you said tandem I've always thought of tandem as being synonymous with two but you could have more It's not riders? yeah
1: tandem it, actually from a mechanical standpoint means that that fore and aft Oh okay um, like, So you so could so have, you have a four
0: seater tandem or uh, uh, I
1: have three seen 10 10,
0: ten, ten
1: wow, which okay. has to be a real challenge but Yeah Yeah so yeah um this is okay. so this, this, this is happens to be a you tandem. you do see a
0: lot of more Cedars than you do multiples. So do we know who owned this bicycle and um, how did the museum acquire it?
1: Well we do know a little bit about it because uh, of the the donor knew some of the lineage. Um, Oh cool. What we know is that her parents got it from a man named Harry Baugh and Harry was born in Missouri he came to Garden City Kansas sometime in the teens and he probably bought this bike new somewhere else he lived in colorado for a while too um or he bought it used in garden city and that's about as far back as we can go harry was a laborer so he didn't have a lot of money and um, that kind of speaks to the whole bust in the bicycle market you know here's this guy who can afford a tandem and he's a laborer um it was very it was very popular to ride bicycles around at the turn of the century. So Harry owned it first to our knowledge and then he passed it on to another family in Garden City by the name of Sartorius. Those were the donors, parents. Oh, okay. um, uh, and they rode it together in Garden City. Uh, they uh, were more of a middle or upper upper middle income family because Joe Sartorius worked as an administrator at a sugar beet factory okay. in Garden City making he was supervising the work of making uh, sugar out of sugar beets. And um, so they they were probably, you know, they, they had a, a nice lifestyle, and the tandem was part of that, being able to ride in a leisurely fashion around the neighborhoods in, in Garden City. Um, so, And then after that, they passed it on to their daughter, it, and the bike actually has a Wichita a bicycle tag on it from 1964 and okay. that probably dates from their daughter Maria's um, ownership of the bicycle so somebody was riding this bike as late as the 1960s
0: Jeez. wow that's neat yeah we, and we've got a photo of the license plate on our website too so uh-huh. you want to go on and look at that and it looks exactly like the bicycle license I had on my bicycle in Wichita <laughs> in 1964 in 1964? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it was a uh, it seemed like a bigger deal back then to get your bicycle license uh-huh. back there and it's that little metal plate Yeah, you know, now they just slap, they slap a sticker, a sticker, sticker on, on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, well now I'm interested in some of the mechanics, maybe of tandem. Mm-hmm. And you're an experienced bicyclist or mm-hmm. cyclist, or however you guys refer to yourselves. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and you yeah, know what you rode across Nebraska. This
1: uh, recently, past yeah. yeah. So five hundred miles.
0: So, uh, so we have an expert here. She knows what she's talking about.
1: Not on a tandem. Uh, not though. On a tandem.
0: But have you ever ridden a tandem?
1: I have actually. My husband and I have ridden a tandem before, and. Um, It is interesting. I mean, you really have to communicate. You should communicate. (laughs) You should communicate communicate with each other, especially on modern bicycles where your feet, you're wearing specially designed shoes that your feet clip onto the pedals. So if one rider pulls over or slows or does something odd, the other rider is clipped in and is trying to figure out what's going on. Um, So ideally you should be good communicator. Um, on the Nebraska ride I went on this summer, we talked to a couple who was on a tandem, and they talked a lot about how um, when you're on these long rides on a tandem, you want to stretch, but you can't on a tandem just pull over and stop, or take your hands off the handlebars and stretch. And so you're constantly communicating Mm -hmm. with the other rider if you're doing it right. Um, And it's kind of interesting, too, because I think we were talking Mm -hmm. a little bit about Mm -hmm. this, you know, is there any difference between riding on the front seat or one of the rear seats and um there is because on the front seat you have total control over you're the person who steers and on a modern bike you're the person who does the shifting Um, but you also are. You have to be pretty strong because you're because you're controlling the bike. Mm-hmm. You have to have a lot of upper body strength to, okay. to do the steering. Unless you're mm-hmm. communicating <laughs> a lot and you get your back riders to yeah. help you. Um, on the back mm-hmm. seat, you don't even have to do anything. And that's kind of a joke in the bicycling community yeah. is that you know that person's not not trying. Um, <laughs> Just along the, for the ride. Yeah, they're <laughs> called stoker. the stoker. So um, the captain's the person in the front, and the stoker's the person in the rear. Okay. But um, it's interesting because. I don't know if a lot of people who know this, but part of the tandem experience is your pedals operate in tandem, too. Mm-hmm. So if you're not paying attention on the back and the front rider's doing all the work, your feet slip can slip oh, off wow. the pedals if you're not clipped in. And so you're just, you know, out there in space yeah. trying to get get control <laughs> back over again, which might have happened on this bicycle. Um, well, I've always that we thought, have. you know, with,
0: with a fixed gear on a tandem, you know, if you have one really strong rider mm-hmm. and one... You know, weaker rider that would be kind of tough because yeah, you know, yes. you're, you're having one person that wants to go faster or you know yeah. you keep up with the same pace. Yeah. I, I always look kind of awkward. They call that yeah.
1: cadence the the mm-hmm. pace at which you spin the pedals. And yeah you yeah. you do have to you do have to adjust. It's like it's a partnership. Yeah. Like any partnership, yeah. you have to get in tune with each other yeah. and make some adjustments. They're making bicycles. Uh, one at least one company is making a tandem today that has independent. Um, Independent coasting. Okay. Wow. So each rider controls the pace at which they want to ride.
0: So yeah. So if you decide you just wanted to coast for a while, you would not want to pedal. Yeah. To do that, and the person yeah. in the back or front could keep. Yeah. Feeling, wow.
1: That'd be. So for you know a, a fee approaching well five thousand dollars, you could be a proud oh. owner of an independent coasting tandem no. today. Okay. Uh, you well, think you'll spend your money some
0: other way? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's. You have to
1: be really interested in bicycling and that's, tandem that's riding in particular. More
0: than we spent on my son's car yeah. <laughs> last year. So yeah, yeah. But, I,
1: well, I I don't think yeah. this particular bicycle in our collection cost that much. It was probably yeah. between fifty and a hundred dollars yeah. because the bottom had fallen out of the market.
0: Well, you know, I, I mentioned cars earlier. Um, you know. As a country, you know we're known for our love of cars. In fact, our current exhibit here at the museum, as you well know, mm-hmm. is our uh, is the need cars the need for speed. And we're looking at that. Um, you know, with the the whole energy crisis, economic crisis. Do you ever think we'll get to the point where we'll use bicycles more, or maybe like you know, like Europeans do actually mm-hmm. use them for commuting? And I know some people commute yeah. in this country, but for, for actually the most part, commuted, we
1: don't. I actually commuted to work today on my we're bicycle, bicycle there, but. Yeah. That's pretty rare, I think, at least in yeah. in Topeka. Um, but I, I don't know that we ever will across the country, but mm-hmm. certainly there are cities in America that lend themselves very well to public transportation or bicycling because owning a car is so inconvenient and expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are the League of American Bicyclists maintains a list or issues a list every year of America's bike-friendliest cities. Mm-hmm. So, the, And there are a couple of, from Kansas that are on that list, Lawrence and Shawnee, mm-hmm. which is in the kansas yeah, city, city area. area so i don't know that we'll ever get as uh, bicycle intensive as europe or yeah. european cities are but we're moving in that direction it's kind of interesting like you said with yeah. you know higher gas prices and as as it becomes more inconvenient for people to own mm-hmm. cars they will certainly turn
0: to that uh, bicycle or public
1: transportation yeah. as as a means of and getting I think, around. I think people
0: might be a little more interested in, in bicycling if you know the community made it you're yeah. welcome, and I know you know. There, as you said, there are certain communities that have bike lanes or seem to be bike friendly, and then or there's paths. communities that just seem like you know you're taking your life in your hands just to get to work because yeah. there isn't a good way to get there. Uh-huh. So,
1: yeah, it, it's a it's a package deal. I mean, people have to be interested in, and the cities have to to help them get there.
0: Uh-huh. Okay, last question. Now, one of the Kansas stereotypes that we consistently deal with, and I hear this all the time. You know, there was that faux study about, you know, how Kansas is flatter than a pancake, you know, is that Kansas <laughs> because is Because pancakes really flat.
1: actually have yeah. changes in Pan- elevation. elevation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Kansas is this absolutely flat state, so just must be, bicycling just must be a breeze around here, right?
1: I think yeah. it's really funny that you use the word breeze. breeze. <laughs> because yes, we probably are flatter than a lot of states. We have hills in this part of the state, definitely. But the real challenge in Kansas is the wind. Is the wind, okay. And, um, this bike having been used in garden city where it's even flatter and windier there's like nothing stopping the wind from the gulf of mexico to canada right i mean in this part of the country there's no mountain it just blasts through here usually out of the south this time of the year um people who rode this bicycle in garden city had to deal with the wind and i've heard cyclists describe that the wind as a hill that never ends
0: so if you look
1: at it that way it's got its own challenges. It's it's not a change in elevation, but it is a challenge.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thanks for telling us about the tandem bike. You're welcome. Okay. If my regards to Broadway, Remember me to Harrow Square.
2: Tell all the gang at 42nd that I will soon
0: be there. With and now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Public Information Officer, Teresa Jenkins. Hello. Okay. Well, it's July, and when you think of July holidays and commemorations, which is kind of how we do a lot of Six Degrees of William Allen White, try to make it topical, you usually think about Independence Day and patriotism, and we were going to do this for the 4th of July, but the 4th of July this year fell right between podcast episodes. Well, we didn't want to ignore one of our favorite holidays, so we decided to go ahead uh, this episode and give Six Degrees of William Allen White a bit of a patriotic spin, and we asked you to connect the Sage of Emporia with the composer of of some of this country's most patriotic music, George M. Cohan. So, Teresa, could you give us a little background on Mr. Cohan?
2: You bet. George Michael Cohan was born July 3, 1878 in Providence, Rhode Island. He started his career as a child, performing with his parents and sister in a vaudeville act known as The Four Cohans. George soon began writing his own songs and eventually became a performer, writer, and producer on Broadway. Cohan's first Broadway hit as a writer was the 1904 show Little Johnny Jones which introduced one of his best known songs, Yankee Doodle Boy, and one of his biggest hits, Give My Regards to Broadway. Cohan went on to write and produce over three dozen Broadway shows between 1906 and 1926. He also continued composing popular Tin Pan Alley songs such as Your Grand Old Flag, 45 Minutes from Broadway, Mary is a Grand Old Name and his other instantly recognizable hit, the World War I song, Over There. Cohan appeared in a few Hollywood films, but he was best known in Hollywood, not for the film he was in, but rather for a film biography about him. In 1942, James Cagney played Cohan in the 1942 Warner Brothers musical, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Cagney won that year's Best Actor Oscar at the Academy Awards for his portrayal of Cohan. George M. Cohan is also one of our country's most decorated entertainers. In 1936, he became the first person in any artistic field to be awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. President Franklin Roosevelt presented the award to Cohan for his contributions to World War I morale, particularly for the songs Over There and Your Grand Old Flag. Previously, the Congressional Gold Medal had only gone to military and political leaders, philanthropists, scientists, inventors, and explorers. Cohan is also the only actor with a statue on Broadway in New York City. If you go to Times Square at Broadway and 46th, you can still see this eight-foot likeness of George M. The simple inscription lists just his name, his birth and death years, and the phrase, give my regards to Broadway. Cohan died of abdominal cancer on November 5, 1942. The musical biography of his life, Yankee Doodle Dandy, was privately screened for him as he battled the last stages of the disease. His influence on the American musical theater was so great that he was often referred to as the man who owned Broadway.
0: And he sort of does own Broadway now (laughs) since he's got a statue. Yeah, he kind of it, it, don't you?
3: Isn't that the same area where you get the cheap tickets for Broadway shows? Yes, it's it's,
0: it's right (laughs) near the tickets booth. (laughs) I think he would appreciate
3: that. Yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure that when I went to New York, my friend mm -hmm. and I were standing in line to get tickets mm -hmm. and we're like, who's that (laughs) statue (laughs) supposed to be? Yeah.
0: And he's not the only statue, because there's also a statue of Father Duffy, who was a World War I priest, oh. but Cohan's the only actor that's got hmm. something there on Broadway. And so, well, that's cool. Kinda, does yeah, it look
2: like James Cagney?
0: Uh, no, <laughs> it actually actually does look like George M. Cohan, if you've seen photographs of him, but I'm not sure many people would say, oh yeah, it looks just like him. See, <laughs> so uh, if they
2: made uh, it like Cagney, everybody would know
0: who <laughs> it is. And do their James Cagney imitation next to it. Well, okay, thanks, Teresa. And Kayla, you've got a solution?
3: I do. Okay. And this one had several so Possibilities. There were a lot of different solutions. And this one's longer, but I figured people get tired of hearing about the same old people every time, so see I tried I'll, to mix it up a little bit. Is
0: the Algonquin Roundtable involved um,
3: anyway? Let's see. Um, they could have been. Could yes. have been. <laughs> But
0: not this time, right? Wait. Not this
3: time. I changed it, yeah. All right, yay. Okay, so uh, George M. Cohan was brother in law to a man named Fred Niblo. Um, Fred was married to his sister Josie, who was also part of the four Cohans. Okay. Um, Fred Niblo was an actor, director, and producer, and he's often cited as being one of the most influential people of the silent era. Uh, Niblo was involved in several several epic films, such as The Mask of Zorro and The Three Musketeers, and he Mm. also directed the silent version of Ben-Hur, which became the third highest grossing silent film in silent film cinema history. So, you know, that's like you say being the tallest building in Emporia. (laughs) Um, One of the stars of Ben-Hur was an actress named Betty Bronson who at 17 was the original film version of Peter Pan. She got the role by interviewing with the story's author James Matthew Barry. And though Barry was Scottish, she spent a fair amount of time in London where he hobnobbed with well-known authors of the day, including Thomas Hardy. Um, Hardy met William Allen White at a party in London in 1909. Barry was at the same party, and William Allen White wanted to meet him but didn't get to meet him. He suspected that word got around the party that he wanted to meet Barry, and Barry slipped out the door before he had a chance. But William Allen White did get to regale uh, Thomas Hardy of Great Stories of Kansas. So, yeah.
0: Good solution. That was cool.
3: Yeah, Barry missed out. They named the park after Peter Pan. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Which, you know, you'd think my mom might be a little bitter, you know, about (laughs) that missed meeting. No (laughs) Peter Pan. I
0: like like James Barry till now. That's either kind of rude or kind of sad for the two. I don't know. Maybe both. Well, Well, Anyway, so Teresa, would you like to issue the challenge for our next episode?
2: It would be my pleasure. Our next episode will be airing just after the finish of this year's Tour de France bicycle race. So we want you to connect William Allen White with Lance Armstrong, arguably the most famous cyclist in the world.
0: All right. So if you think you can connect William Allen White with the man who has won more Tour de France races than anyone in history... Just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts I with an S. Want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. That concludes episode 111 A Bicycle Built for Two. To see photos of the tandem bicycle, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. If you're new to our podcast and would like to hear more, you can listen to every episode clear back to our first podcast in April of 2006 by going to our website and clicking on Podcasts. Our website is also the place to find out everything that's happening at the Kansas Historical Society. You can research our collections, check out a calendar of events, find directions to our library, museum, and historic sites, and even become a member. Come back in two weeks when museum curator Blair Tarr will join me to examine a popular newspaper comic strip from the 1950s that features a uniquely Kansas critter, the mythological Jayhawk. Why did a Jayhawk show up in the nationally syndicated comic strip Pogo? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.